today is the last day of this year's uh, season of Epiphany, and which means it brings us to a close of our series, Whatever Happens. Whatever happens, right? Life happens, troubles happen. We live under this illusion that we are in control of our lives. Our lives seem to uh, work in ways that there's this kind of cause and effect. I work hard, I work a little harder, I stay focused, I make a plan, the plan works out. Except that doesn't always happen. Life happens, stuff happens. We, we get this impression though, I think, that we are in control uh, because we can, we can plan things. And uh, sometimes our plans do work out and sometimes our hard work does pay off. We live with these uh, gadgets. Uh, we hold them in our pockets or our purses. Um, they used to be called telephones. Surely they're much more than that now. There's an app for everything you need. There's an app for you to check your weather. There's an app for you to check your uh, favorite restaurant. There's an app for you probably to put in a reservation at your restaurant after church today. There's an app to look at the menu of that restaurant so that if you do get bored with what I have to say, you can check the menu, you can make a reservation, you can check the weather, and you can get directions, um, all, all while you're just sitting here uh, listening. But here's the, here's the problem. The problem is that um, life happens, that our plans get diverted, that things do not go the way we want them to go. And we often end up with some kind of scar or scars um, based on the tragedies that we find ourselves in. Physical scars, emotional scars that remind us that we are not in control. So I wonder, I wonder what scars that you have. Um, scars on your hands, on your legs, on your hearts, on your minds. Scars that are caused by poor health, or loss of job, or loss of relationship. But whatever that case may be, today we're going to focus on this reality, that hope happens. Hope happens. We've, begin, we've been beginning each of our services so far with a passage from Romans chapter 8 where Paul says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him. Now, we've said that a lot, and hopefully it's starting to seep in. We know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him. This idea that, that in the epiphany, in the manifestation of God, the, the, despite the fact that life happens, that uh, doubt happens, that struggle happens, that problems happen, that we can have courage, we can have hope. But let's be honest with ourselves. Do we really believe that in all things God works for the good? Now, had Paul said in some things God works for the good, I could buy into that pretty easily because some things seem to be pretty good. Even some things, that is, God can work out some things that I thought were bad and they turn out to be good. Applied for a job, I didn't get it. I ended up getting a different job and I'm really happy with it. I was in a relationship, I thought it was going to go long term. It broke off. I got in a different relationship 
and it's, it's, it's defined my life. Those sorts of things, right? So some of that works out, but then a lot of it doesn't, which kind of begs the question, is it all things? The psalmist uh, says this, says, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? I mean, it sounds like the psalmist is not believing in Paul's statement. I mean, Paul had yet to write a statement, but still not believing in Paul's statement that all things are work for the good. Ellen Davis, an Old Testament scholar, wrote about this type of Old Testament prayer. She says, In no other culture did people pray to the high God in language that was so strong, so forthright, and even so rude. Wake up, God. We're here. Why is it working out this way? You made a promise. I mean, look at Job. Job's like, if I could get God in court and get God on the witness stand, then I could prove to all you people that I haven't done anything wrong and it's God that we're waiting on to answer the, the situation. Pretty rough stuff. Growing up in a kind of Appalachian Pentecostal church, um, we called it praying through or holding on to the horns of the altar. It was this idea that you didn't say a simple prayer and then things were over, but you kind of tarried in the altar. You waited, you struggled, you testified. And testimonies weren't always praise reports. They were filled with negative things, not just positive things. They were the true stories of our struggle. Where is God when trouble emerges in our lives? And so we're going to focus the rest of our time on this one saying of Jesus out of John 16. Jesus is getting ready to depart. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. And he has these encouraging words. I have told you these things, he says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So let's look at this first phrase. In this world, you will have trouble. It's such a matter-of-fact statement on Jesus' part. You people are going to struggle. <laughs> it is going to be tough. People are going to ignore you. People are going to abuse you. You're not always going to have it easy. So, so matter-of-fact. M. Scott Peck wrote in his famous book, The Road Less Traveled, he starts off with these three simple words. Life is difficult. Wow. Thanks. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> this is what you needed somebody to tell you. Life is hard. So we're going to look at a few categories um, of what trouble uh, looks like and where trouble comes from. So Jesus says we will have trouble but what, what is that, and, and what is it like? So first, we have trouble that's caused, um, or pain that's caused from bad choices. We make bad choices, and those bad choices cause pain in our lives. Um, several years ago, there was a news article about a family from Texas. They had relocated to Tacoma, Washington, and they had a nine-year-old boy. Well, he so missed his home he, nine years old, just think how small that is. He, he so missed his home that he was determined to get back to Texas. So he stole the neighbor's car, 
was doing like 90 miles an hour, got to the airport, got through security. This, is, this, is, this was in the news. What TSA was doing, I'm not sure. Gets on a plane, uh, flies to San Antonio, gets on a connecting flight, flies to Dallas. It's at the Dallas airport that he uh, was apprehended and actually arrested. Um, but, you know, some would say jail in Texas is better than life in Tacoma. I'm not sure. <laughs> but then, but then you've, you probably have a, a friend who might fit into this category. Um, they find themselves um, single, uh, kind of midlife, and, and they're kind of going through uh, relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, and, and they think, well, you know, there, there are no good people out there. There's one constant in all of those relationships, right? Right? It's our friend. Look, I, I want you to look at somebody next to you and say this. You're part of the problem. <laughs> Go ahead. Everybody say, look, find somebody. Say, you're part of the problem. <laughs> Feels good, doesn't it? Especially if you're looking at your spouse, maybe. I don't know. But there are other ways in which pain comes, which trouble comes. Pain doesn't just come from bad choices. Sometimes pain comes from good choices. You make the choice not to take overtime, and you're going to spend time with your family. And then you don't get the promotion. You don't get the pay raise. You're dating, and you make the choice to have boundaries, to, to live according to a, a holy standard. And then the relationship falls apart. You see, sometimes uh, it's because of our good choices, um, our, our, de our determination to kind of follow Jesus that puts us at odds with the systems of the world. And that, that places us in times of trouble. Of course, we all know that we have suffered pain from loss. Uh, loss of jobs, loss of relationships, loss of health. Um, really, all of, all of that is loss. Sickness is a loss of health. Unemployment is a loss of work. Divorce is a, a breakup of relationship. Betrayal is a loss of friendship. Injury is a loss of ability to do something. Death is a loss of life. Jesus experienced this. Not, I mean, even in his own life, we see him hearing about the death of his friend Lazarus. And we hear about his grief and his tears and his sorrows. It's pain from loss. We also have pain from senseless suffering. Refugee crisis. You find families who used to have middle-class lives where their homes have been destroyed, they've been displaced, and now they find themselves in a different place, in a different country, without the access to resources children that used to be in school are now working in the fields. We have child poverty and human trafficking, tragic death, natural disaster, miscarriages, so much senseless pain. The word used here in John 16 for trouble is an interesting word um, because 
There are other words that mean like affliction or tribulation, but this word carries this connotation of weightiness, as though the weight of the world is kind of just resting on us, which begs this question for me. Okay, Jesus, I get it. In this world we'll have trouble, but why so much trouble? Why so much pain? Is there not just too much? Have you ever asked that? <clears throat> Come on, God. Let's kick it into gear. Is this not too much for us to handle? And so we ask this question, why? Why? And, and sometimes there is a clear answer. We've made a bad choice or we made a good choice. But sometimes there's not a clear answer. Sometimes things, bad things just happen. Sometimes disasters just happen. In Luke chapter 13, uh, Jesus hears about two deadly disasters. And this is what he says about them. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? In other words, is it because of their sin that they suffered? He says this, I tell you that no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he goes on to say, or these 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So here's the thing. Sometimes troubles just happen. It's, it's part of the natural world. A hurricane, a tornado, a tsunami, a disease, a diagnosis, life, age. But <clears throat> this is an important point. While sometimes we, we often see ourselves as victims when we talk about trouble, if we're honest, we realize that sometimes we are the perpetrators. We do things that are wrong. We hurt people. We hurt their feelings, we hurt their emotions, we hurt them psychologically. And then they make bad choices kind of based on the hurt that we've done to them. So we're, we're not innocent in this world. Um, the psalmist says this too in Psalm 130. He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? If God kept a record of sins, who, which one of us could stand? There's several things I like about that. One is that it reminds me that when I'm wanting God to take care of evil, you know, my, my general impression is God should just come and wipe it out. But of course, if God just came and wiped out evil, I could be in danger, <laughs> right? Because there's evil in me. But what I like about how the psalmist says this, it says, if if you, Lord, kept a record of our sins, who could stand? Because God's not keeping a record of our sins. This is said in the Psalms. Think about that. We often think about the Old Testament as this law, as this kind of standard we couldn't live by. And here's the psalmist saying, God doesn't keep records of our sins. Paul says something very similar to this in 2 Corinthians 5. He'll say that, uh, Jesus Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation so that God's no longer counting people's sins against them. Well, apparently he never was. Jesus says this. This is the second half of the phrase. He says that trouble will come, but then he says this. But take heart, 
I have overcome the world. Now that, my friends, is good news. That is something that gives us something to hope in. Yes, we're going to have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world. But then that too begs the question, doesn't it? If Jesus has overcome the world, why are we still suffering? <laughs> and we're still suffering because we live in this kind of liminal space, this, this medium time, this kind of already and not yet, where it's coming, but it's not quite completely here. Here's another story of, of, of a couple, Scott and Chrissy. Uh, Scott and Chrissy. Uh, Scott wanted to um, have this elaborate plan to propose, it's becoming more and more pressure, it seems like, these days, to offer some big proposal. You've got to go to a location, and you've got to have all the lighting right, and the pictures right, and the story right. Well, Scott's, Scott's the inverse of all of that. He gets it completely wrong. Instead of proposing on Valentine's Day, he decides to wait until the day after, which is just confusing. And instead of picking a night where he had plenty of time, he picked a night that he had to work late. And instead of coming up with something romantic and inspiring, he decides to go, go play putt-putt. And everybody knows there's no, there's no woman that actually enjoys mini golf. <laughs> And so he's, he's getting nervous about it, so he's starting to act awkward. And so all she can think about is something's wrong. He's getting ready to kind of to lower the boom. Um, he's going to share some kind of bad news. He lost his job, or he's got a bad diagnosis, or he wants to take a break from the relationship. This is what's going through her head. And what's going through his head is, well, I've got the ring. So they, they drive back to their apartment. And Scott parks next to the trash dumpsters. <laughs> so he's, he's thinking this could be the time. He's ready to get out, walk around, take a knee, pop the question. But she's not ready to get out of the car. She's had enough. What's going on tonight? You've been crazy. What's wrong with you? Mal just confused and frustrated. He pulls out the ring and pops the question right there next to the dumpster. <laughs> so fortunately, Chris, Chrissy does say yes. But then, this kind of f finds ourselves in this happy ending, but this extraordinarily difficult path there. It's an analogy for our lives. We do have a happy ending, but the happy ending may have an extraordinarily bumpy road on the way there. In the book of Revelation, almost at the very end, uh, the writer says this, speaking of God, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Look, I get it. Life gets hard. Um, and we all experience it in various ways. Uh, the, the death of uh, a family member, um, the, the tragicness of an accident, the um, struggles that we have relationally and financially. But Christ has overcome, and hope does happen.
In closing, I'd like to talk about three ways in which uh, what overcoming does look like. So overcoming means that we can fail, but we can't give up. Overcoming means we can fail, but we can't give up. It's like Tom uh, Hanks' character on, on um, Castaway. Castaway? Yeah. He, um, he doesn't give up. He fails. He fails at a lot of things. He fails at trying to commit suicide. We can all experience this failure, but if we just keep breathing, who knows what will happen when the sun rises? Who knows what the tide might bring in? Um, David Bales was an a art teacher, and he was teaching uh, ceramics, and he decided to um, give his students, um, split his students in half, and one of the groups uh, were going to be graded on the quantity of their work. So if they produced 50 pounds of pottery, um, uh, they would get an A, if 40 pounds would be a B, 30 pounds would be a C. And the other group were going to be measured on the quality of the work. Like they could, they could just produce one single pot, but as long as it was, you know, really good, you know, they'd get the A. As it turns out, uh, almost without fail, the ones that had, were being um, graded on the quantity produced better pots because they did it and they did it and they did it and they did it. At first, as they started doing it, the pots weren't so good. But then they kept making more pots and more pots, and they, they started getting better at it and getting better at it. You see, who we are and what we do go hand in hand. And it's not a matter how often we fail or how often we fall. It's a matter of us keeping going. Um, Thomas Edison uh, tried a couple thousand ways to make the light bulb, the incandescent light bulb. Uh, and afterwards, he said he didn't fail. He just found out 2,000 ways not to make the light bulb. Right? And this is, true, this is true for us, too, that overcoming means we can fail, but we don't give up. Uh, Proverbs 24, 16 puts it like this. For though the righteous falls seven times, they rise again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. So listen to me. Tomorrow, you're going to fail. You'll fail at work. You'll fail in communicating. You'll be misunderstood. You'll fail as a parent. You'll fail financially. You'll fail socially. The difference between resilient and non-resilient people is that it's not that resilient people don't fail and non-resilient do. Everybody fails. The difference is, however, that how we respond to it. Secondly, overcoming means we trust God can bring good out of the worst possible circumstances. We trust that God can bring good out of the worst possible circumstances. In the Gospel of John, um, we, have, we have two sick people that kind of form bookends of this one section. The one guy's been paralyzed like 38 years, and he's waiting for somebody to help him kind of get down in the water Jesus offers to, him, to make him whole, and he's like, okay, man, 
just hang out. You can help me throw me in the water. And Jesus is like, I'm not offering to throw you in the water. I'm offering to make you whole. So, so Jesus prays, and, and, and the man's healed. Um, later, though, Jesus sees the guy, and the first thing he says to him is, stop sinning. Stop sinning, lest something worse happen to you than being paralyzed for 38 years. Now, what's worse than being paralyzed 38 years? I'm not sure. But, what, but Jesus says, stop sinning. So the disciples apparently make this connection between sin and sickness. So much so that the next time we see a sick person in the narrative is in John chapter 9, a man born blind. And the disciples say, well, who sinned, this man or his parents? To which Jesus says, well, nobody sinned. This, this, this guy's just blind. Sin's sin unrelated to the situation we find ourselves in. But what we do find is that although it was no one's fault, this man is restored. His worst possible nightmare becomes an opportunity for God to deliver. We've been through a lot as a church over the last decade. We're no strangers to suffering. But we've also seen God work. God work in miraculous ways. It doesn't mean that the suffering's not real. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt. It doesn't mean that, that uh, life is not hard. But what it does mean is that in our faithfulness, we find each other and we find God. And God delivers in ways that we can't anticipate. Lastly, overcoming means we live with the ultimate hope of God's presence. One of the things that separates Christianity from other faiths is just this, this kind of expectation. Jesus comes in the world and he says, in this world you'll have trouble. And he says, I get it. I live through it. The tension in your marriage, the loneliness in your heart, the financial stress in your family, to quote Phil here, the struggle you see playing out in the, in the person you love or in the grief of your loss. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to explain our suffering. He came into the world to share it. I want to say that again. Jesus didn't come into the world to explain our suffering. He came into the world to share it. And for that reason, we can live every day of our lives knowing that he is present with us in this life and he will be with us in the life to come. Popular passage written by King David, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. It ends like this. David says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This doesn't mean that David's going to live a trouble-free life. But it does mean that he is forever pursued by a loving God. And that his final destination is one in the house of the Lord. And this is why we hope. We hope in God. We lean heavy into it with an expectation that though we may have trouble, Christ is overcome. Though we may have trouble, God can work all things for the good. All things. 
hope happens. You see, in this world, you will have trouble. God knows how the story ends, though. And God already has the ring. For that reason, I want us to take heart. You can overcome because Jesus is overcome. We're going to close out this series of Epiphany together in just a few moments. But before, I want you uh, to hear an amazing story from two of our fellow Oasians, two young ladies. And as you listen, I'd like you to think about how God has helped you overcome trouble in this world. Jen. Surprise, we're twins. <laughs> Together, Jen and I were born on plastic trash bags to a third generation homeless woman. Just like this hopeless situation, there would be many like it in our lives. But each time, God came through. You see that everyone in our family, they had kids by the time they were 14 or 15 years old. They would have three kids before they were even 18. And because of this, no one ever reached past the middle school education. The house we lived in was a shack, really. It had boarded up windows. We didn't even have, there was big gaping holes in the wall. You could see straight through it from the street. And we even grabbed our neighbor's hose and we strung it through the window so we could bathe at night. It was here that my mother raised us and her sons went into drug dealing and the women went into prostitution. All the babies were left to fend for themselves. But Jen and I were different. We were the special ones. We found God pretty early on. But the struggles at home continued. It really picked up during the recession when we were in middle school. My brothers got dealing into a stronger crowd and we lost everything when they came to collect. We have seen someone shot right in front of us for owing $8 for drugs. My brothers would come home at 3 a.m. as drunk as can be, sometimes beating us, calling us names that we didn't recognize and asking us what we did with the money. They would stab my frail stepdad several times until blood covered the floor. It was no longer safe and we often ran off into the night. Yet still God was with us. I remember one night praying and asking the Holy Spirit to come and cover me, to not let my heart beat even a moment faster and so that I couldn't feel even a chill in the cold night. And as I prayed, I could feel something come up and cover me, like a warmth, like a blanket. And when I woke up, birds were singing, and a morning glory somehow found its way in front of my nose and bloomed when I woke up. We'd run off to school and brush our teeth in the hallway and bathroom, but school was our playground to test out what God could do. I remember Calf waking me up at 5 in the morning for calculus tutoring because she figured if we could help our friends, maybe we could minister to them. She would say, wake up, Jen. It's time to enter the biggest mission field. Get up for school. But see, Mom didn't want us going to church. She was a waitress. She had been a waitress her whole lives. And Christians were the worst. They would leave Bible tracts instead of tips. And they would condemn her for having many colored children. They often refused to come into our ghettos. They would roll up the windows if they had to drive by. We, she wasn't interested in us going to church at all. So 
when we became interested, she couldn't have it. We were the only good kids, and she couldn't have us corrupted by being Christians. She began beating us if she ever caught us going to a service, found our Bibles, and found our worship CDs. And when that didn't work, she punished us from doing our homework, knowing that God and school were the only important things to us. She would smack us across the face, sending us spinning around and around, and then smacked us again, taunting us, saying, come here and let me hit you again. Don't disobey your mother now. Isn't that what the Bible tells you? I had such a deep love for my mother and a fear for God. I boldly walked up to her beatings every time, and I said, I love God, Mama, and I'll always love you too, until she got so infuriated that the house shook with anger. Get out of my sight, she would say. And though I was bold in front of her, I often cried myself to sleep, crawling under my bed and repainting the word family over and over again with my nail polish into the wooden frame, praying that God would one day um, present, be present in our household. When we were in high school, Jen had a dream. In this dream, a voice told her that God was going to show my mom who she was without God that God was gonna have her hit rock bottom until she recognized him. And a couple months later, that happened. My mom had a series of strokes that left her completely paralyzed. She was unable to swallow. She couldn't remember much of anything. And she had diapers and we had to take care of her. A month after that, my stepdad died of a heart attack. And honestly, it was a relief. It was a moment where these people who had beat us no longer could. And we had to go through life facing this new reality. We went from on and off homelessness to completely losing everything that year. It had been almost two years since my brothers had seen a single sober day. Mom went off to live in a rehab center to learn how to chew and swallow again and eventually learning how to use one of her arms. We got several part-time jobs, ate free lunch at school, and slept on the playgrounds around our church pews. Nonetheless, God was in our midst. We love praying, and it seems that God just loves to hear it. I began giving speeches for the IB program at my school. And one time, one of the CEOs stood up and asked what my goal was to raise, and I told him $10,000. At the end of the speech, he came up, and he wrote the check for exactly $10,000. And he turned to the next CEO, and he said, I'll trust you all follow suit. And then one by one, they said they wanted to help us personally. They gave us a free car, free braces, free dentistry for life an eye exam, glasses, contacts, groceries. The car became our home when each summer night when there was no school to feed us, God heard our prayers and someone would come and give us groceries. And even once food appeared as we prayed, multiplying the small portions that were in our hands until we were full with some left over. See, there was a brief time where we actually could afford a house, Jen and I. And we got this house and we didn't have any furniture in it. We bought a rug, we rolled it out, and with five of our siblings, we would curl up and sleep on that rug. And the night before we graduated from high school, Jen and I sat together with our other siblings, remembering all that God had done for us. And the crazy thing is, is I graduated high school with a 5.0 GPA on our 4.0 scale. Jen did better with a 5.4. <laughs> and um, we got scholarships to kind of Southeastern. It was here where we began studying. We really, really wanted to learn so much, and we also got to learn about God. It was here that we found Professor Lamp and her husband, Alan, and now we call them Mom and Poppy, and they're a real family to us, and they've really taken us in. 
Somehow they still can't seem to get rid of us, though. Uh, while I was a sophomore at SCU, I deeply prayed for God to restore my hope for my family, for God to remember those nail-polished prayers and stain, tear-stained woods. I took on a second and then a third job between classes, working between 70 to 110 hours a week. And one Saturday when I, was, when I felt I was ready, I drove a few hours home and searched deep into the ghetto. I found my brother behind a dumpster under a car top that had been thrown out and rotting. Wasted and severely dehydrated, I took all the vodka bottles away from him and told him, if you're serious about getting your lifestyle different, then I'll come back at night when you're sober. I drove him to Lakeland, helped him sign a lease for an apartment, got him a job, and paid for the first several months of rent for him, the only condition being that he was not allowed to have a single sip of alcohol. He enjoyed breakfast here at Oasis, and I was so overwhelmed to hear him exclaim, Jenny, it's like the coolest thing. Sometimes I pray, and it's like God gets the answer ready for me. But when I realize I'm reading it, he wrote it thousands of years ago. You know, Jen, I think you're my best friend. He has since gotten a new apartment and job in Orlando, and it has been two years of sobriety for him. While Olivia's passing was extremely hard on us since Cass, she was Cass' first youth student as a small group leader, I chose to live it up by getting back in contact with my family, to try to bring hope and light to our mother, an impoverished and hurting other brother and our mom. I now write letters and send packages to my mom's rehab center every month and have phone dates for a half an hour every Monday. It's fun to try and get to learn ourselves again. One day she, she woke up and she said, Jenny, I remember the dream, and she asked if we could pray. Since then, we have been having those charming conversations as we get to learn who each other are, sometimes over and over, but lately she can remember who I am. I'm most grateful for God's restoration of hope there. Since then, now I have the great opportunity to extend my education even, fur sorry, even further. I'm a master's student at Southeastern studying divinity, and I'm also a graduate assistant there to pay for it. I get to be an academic advisor where I get to help people find their passions, find the hope that God has given them, and be able to work that into a career somehow. I also get to teach our students here. I teach the kids in Upstreet and the youth students at C5 and get to show them how good God is through all of our hardships. Now, I'm a high school English teacher at Winter Haven High School. I teach in 11th and 12th grade English. I'm the first in my family to get out of poverty. And last year, I got to help my brother buy his daughter prom dress and his kindergartner her first book bag and school supplies. He just turned 44 this month and I got to give him his first birthday gift since he was 10 years old. And what do you know, the man cried. For the first time, my brothers are willing to hear about the palpable forgiveness of God, and I get to be a part of it. Because Jesus has overcome, we can overcome poverty, fear, and hopelessness. As we end our service today, uh, I want to give each of us a chance to share our story of hope as well. On the screen is a simple phrase, a profound statement though, because Jesus has overcome, I can overcome blank. I'd like you to think about what goes in that blank for you. I want to give you a chance to come forward to one of the microphones located on the left and right. Afterwards, um, just as Kath and Jen did, I invite you to then come and light a candle, just as a way to say that even in the world of trouble, hope happens. 
and you will not give up. After that, then you can be seated and we'll dismiss in just a moment. overcame, I can overcome grief. Because Jesus overcame, I can overcome my husband's cancer and an eating disorder. Because of memories from Vietnam, I can overcome depression. overcame, I can um, overcome multiple sclerosis, Wagner's disease, alopecia, and heart issues.
Because Jesus overcame, I can overcome my fear of failure. overcame I can overcome unforgiveness for someone that wronged me overcame I can overcome the stench and the filthiness of my prior life Jesus overcame, I can overcome pride and start to trust. 